0: And I'm Jessica.
1: And this is the Always the Critic podcast, where a couple of friends review the latest movies, except we literally have zero qualifications to do so. Jessica, how are hey. you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. I was watering some trees, you yeah, know, taking <laughs> the dog for a walk, uh, and it's so hot outside. It's disgusting outside. Ugh. Oh, man. So, yeah, that, yeah, that's
1: the thing about being in, in Florida, is that people envy you. But they don't really understand the oppressive Mm -hmm. heat that it, it becomes here. It's
0: humid. And like the other day I was fishing. This sounds so weird. But like I was fishing with my dad and like the weather turned so fast it was yes. like perfect. The birds were chirping. It was like sunset. And then all of a sudden, like these dark clouds rolled in and the wind picked up and it was like a hard sprinkle. We were like, oh my God, let's get out of here. It was, it's like the weather in Florida is super bipolar. It just switches on a dime. So, Oh yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, and yeah. that's exactly what we're getting into in this, in this season. It's summer. Uh, yeah. It, it's summer, which means that every day at three o'clock thunderstorm it's gonna
0: rain it's gonna rain
1: <laughs> every single day so for those people who are listening that don't live in florida you may not realize how it works where what do you mean <laughs> it's gonna rain it, it's so bright and sunny out yeah every no, single day understand. during the summer yeah mm-hmm. Torrential it downpour. Every it's on the day. calendar <laughs> yeah it really is it's ridiculous but we get used to it we kind of even yeah. on our disney days we kind of time it Where (laughs) either we'll go right after the storm hits for the day, Mm -hmm. or we'll plan it where our downtime of, like, we'll sit in a show happens during that time. (laughs) Yes. Little things like that. Now, uh, if you are joining us, if this is your first time, well, you have joined us in the middle of our series. We are in the middle of the Always the Critic Presents Hitchcock. We are in week three. And we're about to dive into the (laughs) 1950s of Hitchcock. Now, before we do, a big, big note here is that we'll be splitting the era into two episodes. So the first two have been, you know, we cover an entire decade in one episode.
0: 1920s, 630s, and then week two was 1940s. And then we promised we were going to do one whole episode on the 50s, and it's just too much. Like... We it were is. having so many issues trying to choose which films we were going to watch this week. We didn't want to miss any big ones. So we just decided to split split like the Red Sea down the middle. Exactly.
1: So uh, we're taking our time. We're giving ourselves space, the space it deserves. So here on this episode, we're going to cover the 1950 through 1955. Funny enough, we're going to nickname this era the Grace Kelly era. Uh, Because she did all three of her Hitchcock movies during these years. And we will (laughs) touch on those three movies here.
0: Yep, absolutely. So like Rico said, we're on week three of our ATC Percents Hitchcock series. Last week, we covered Hitchcock's 1940s career after he made his way to Hollywood. We watched four big movies during that era, Rebecca, Suspicion, Spellbound, and Rope. We talked about some drama behind the scenes, my favorite thing. (laughs) Um, There was beef between the stars of his movies, beef between him and Cary Grant, and major beef between Hitchcock and producer Dave. David O. Cheese me. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. So um, at this point, um, where we left off, Hitchcock's 1949 movie Under Capricorn was a total dud at the box office, and it caused his production studio, Transatlantic Pictures, to go under.
1: Now, after Transatlantic Pictures, Hitchcock signed a contract with Warner Brothers. His first film for the studio was Stage Fright in 1950, starring Marlene Dietrich, Jane Wyman, Richard Todd, and Michael Wildling. Hitchcock believed that this movie was more than a murder mystery, and more a closer look at the acting profession. He said later in an interview, The aspect that intrigued me is that it was a story about the theater. What specifically appealed to me was the idea that the girl who dreams of becoming an actress will be led by circumstances to play a real-life role by posing as someone else in order to smoke out a criminal.
0: Hitch also wanted to make this film, which took place in the UK, because his daughter was studying drama at the Royal Academy in London, and he wanted to be closer to her for a bit. Home base was obviously now California, Hollywood for him, so he was very far from his daughter Patricia. Now, going back to the plot, this movie does something unique, which totally upset audiences at the time. The opening 13 minute long flashback scene was a total lie. It's not obvious that the character was lying. And back then it was cinematic convention that flashbacks were always true. So having an unreliable narrator was brand spanking new and audiences were truly baffled by it. And they felt cheated. This device was obviously Done plenty of time since, but Hitch returned to the concept for movies like Vertigo and Psycho.
1: That's very interesting that people were adverse to it at the beginning, but yeah. now it's just something we do all the time.
0: Yeah, and we're constantly questioning ourselves whether this person is reliable, whether, you know, we can believe the character. And it's always like nice to have a twist like that.
1: Yeah, it is, especially nowadays where uh, everybody's always looking for the twist, so Mm. being able to kind of disguise it with an unreliable narrator is, I think, a great idea. Mm. Now, we've talked already about how precise and controlling and demanding Hitchcock is or was. He was a perfectionist. So we thought it's worth mentioning that he gave actress Marlene Diedrich creative control over her lighting. He knew that she learned a thing or two from a couple of great cinematographers on her other projects, and so he led her work with cinematographer Wilkie Cooper to light and set her scenes the way she wanted, which is actually pretty unbelievable for any director to do that nowadays. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one last thing, and then we'll move on. In her biography, Marlene Dietrich said this about stage fright. Hitchcock filmed stage fright in London when food was still strictly rationed. He solved the problem by having steaks and roasts flown in from America and delivered to the best restaurants in London. And then after work, he would invite Jane Wyman and me to a princely dinner. Ladies must be well fed, he would say, as we gratefully polished off the delicacies, which is a super extravagant thing to do. And it makes me think twice about how Cary Grant felt that Joan Fontaine was getting preferential treatment on the set of Suspicion back in last week's episode.
1: Yes, very, very true. Mm -hmm. Now, the next movie that we're going to talk about here is actually going to be Strangers on a Train. Uh, this is from 1951, which is based on a novel by Patricia Highsmith. The letterbox synopsis reads A psychotic socialite confronts a pro tennis star with a theory on how two complete strangers can get away with murder, a theory that he plans to implement. Now, uh, there's a, of course, we started this last week and we're going to do that again this week. <laughs> uh, before we truly talk about the movie, let's hit our Hitchcock questionnaire. Oh, yeah. to kind of prep us if we get the touches and the hallmarks that Hitchcock usually presents us with. Mm-hmm. So first mm-hmm. is there a murder? Yes. Yes. yes there is. <laughs> <laughs> Bruno, Bruno kills uh, Miriam.
0: Is yes. there a blonde protagonist?
1: No there isn't which no. is a surprise in this one. Mm-hmm,
0: I is know. there a
1: character <laughs> on the run?
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm sorry I think it's funny the police chase after guy after he bails following the tennis match so yes someone's on the run yep. any foreboding shadows yes or no
1: yes there is throughout the entire movie but there was some good uh, foreboding shadows in the tunnel of love as yep. Bruno you know she he's gaining on Miriam's boat which was I thought yeah, was really good was pretty cool now is there ominous staircases in the movie
0: Yeah, when Guy goes to murder Bruno's father, uh, he ascends the staircase in this house, and there's a huge Great Dane waiting on the landing. So, yes. Is there a train, yes or no?
1: (laughs) It's in the title. (laughs) Strangers (laughs) on a Train. So, yes, there is. It would be very weird if this movie did not have a train with the title the way it is. Now, does the character (laughs) whistle in the movie? Yes, there is some whistling when Bruno calls guy over across the street the night of the murder. Was there at
0: least one handwritten note yes or no? I I want to say yes but I can't remember I, so I'll just say no.
1: I will say this. Do you um, Bruno actually drew the map of his house on a piece oh, of paper Yes for I
0: think that came with a note, right?
1: Yeah, that did. Okay, then, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> yes. yes,
1: there is a note yeah. in in there. So, now, okay. is there a gripping, or actually, before I get to the last one, uh, did we see a newspaper headline? This one, no, actually. I, I don't think don't so. No. I believe we, no, we didn't no. see one on this one. Mm-mm.
0: Is there a gripping climax possibly at an iconic landmark? Yes or no? Gripping climax? Yes, absolutely. Very there true. was a runaway merry-go-round involved. So, yeah. But an iconic landmark, I, no, there wasn't.
1: Not in the end, but in the middle of the movie, he, they are walking around the Washington Monuments because they are in mm-hmm. D.C. So, right. So, you know, if, if you consider that, but that's not in the end. But <clears throat> But just – Yeah, they're to, walking around you – know, they're walking around. Yeah. Now let's talk about the movie itself. What well, we thought of it, yeah. Jessica. What did you think of Strangers on a Train?
0: Uh, I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. I almost like was bored for most mm. of it, except oh. until like the third act, and then I was like, "Oh my god, I'm like all in." So gotcha. So <laughs> what was <laughs> the turning point
1: for you that you felt? I think felt- the tennis
0: match. Because, they, nice. because Bruno and Guy were basically racing to get to the fairground island first so that they could stop the other one from planting evidence on the island for the police to find because he was going to put the uh, the cigarette lighter on the island implicating Guy that he was the murderer. Um So from the tennis match on, I was like, oh, my God, there was a lot of suspense in that third act. Um, I thought it was tremendous. Uh, Definitely a nail biter. It was just a race to the finish.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, I found Mm -hmm. the third act to be pretty good. I I enjoyed that aspect of, you know, it's almost like a ticking clock of who's Mm going to get to a certain place first. Uh, That's always great. Uh, So you have a chase scene. Um let me ask you this, what do you think of our lead uh Farley Grangers his real name He plays Guy Haynes. He, we also saw him in the movie Rope. What do you think of yeah. him as an actor and so far the two performances you've seen?
0: Um, I think he's okay. I didn't feel that he was special um if you get my drift. I, I he just was like, yeah. it could have been anybody. It wasn't like, yeah. wow, this is so perfectly cast. It has to be Farley Granger.
1: No, yeah, because I, I've kind of, and the way I felt about it in Rope kind of got solidified with this movie. I don't think he's a very good actor. Mm. I think that a lot of it comes from just expressions and trying to mm-hmm. pull off expressions, but he's, like the way he delivers lines is never great. I feel like they're either too exaggerated or you know or they just don't yeah. fit the moment i don't know i mm. i just never buy his acting or his style so that's that's one thing that's a knock on this movie is uh-huh. him as the lead um, now i found otherwise. the guy that
0: played bruno really really good yes
1: robert <laughs> I mean, walker when he was delivers
0: yeah when he delivers that line want to hear my perfect idea for a murder i was like Ugh. <laughs> yikes <laughs> If someone comes yeah. at you on a train and wants to know your opinion on um, their idea for a murder, you always just run, run <laughs> as fast <laughs> as you can.
1: I know. <laughs> hey, I, I'm planning on killing someone. Want to hear how I'm going to do it? Like, it, <laughs> <laughs> no, bye. <laughs> That's, no, peace absolutely out. not. <laughs> now, what I found interesting about this movie is that the movie prior that we reviewed, which was Rope, was in color but yet this mm-hmm. movie was in black, it's in black and
0: black white, and white yeah which
1: I don't know if it was because of the transatlantic pictures or well it was dissolved by then I guess at that point maybe Warner Brothers didn't want to invest in making it in color who knows yeah, uh, I'm not know. sure I don't but, know
0: if it was a creative decision I it didn't seem like it was even a thing like ooh why is it color why is it black and white um yeah I don't know. But there were some great visuals of like Bruno stalking guy throughout DC.
1: Yes. Yes. Right? There were. Yes, there was.
0: Pretty like scary. (laughs) Like if you see this dude like waiting for you on the steps of like (laughs) a a memorial there in DC, you're like, oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: And and (laughs) it's so grab a cab. (laughs) It's the way it's framed as well, because he's like right in the middle of the shot, but it's there's it feels so big. And then just him yeah. right in the middle. It It's great, great cinematography mm-hmm. at the time, for now, sure. Now, I
0: did like how the mom, Bruno's mom, was in complete
1: denial over oh, her sure. <laughs> son being a
0: psychopath. <laughs> she would, like, Bruno had a plan to blow up the White House, and his mom took it as a joke. I know, she, I know. She was like, oh, just, you know, very, like, just airheady and dumb, like, not in total denial and then when when um Anne goes to see the mom and tell her like your son is a psycho he killed a, a woman he's a murderer she's like oh no he often jokes all the time blah 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 see yourself out <laughs> like I have to go paint
1: right what? exactly a
0: lady just came and told you your son is a murderer
1: nope and not he's gonna, joked about it <laughs> and
0: no no
1: no that's not that's not my boy
0: not my boy and i'm not worried at all about him
1: (laughs) no exactly
0: um the other thing that i wanted to mention was that they seem to explore the concept or idea of someone being obsessed with true crime um because barbara and sister is also really into true crime just like bruno is but what's the difference between bruno and barbara They both have this extreme interest in the morose, in crime, and in murder. But Barb's, I found, was more of a fascination while Bruno's was, like, an admiration. Like, he was like, if they can do it, I can do it. This is, you know, a blueprint almost versus, like, Barbara that's just kind of more on today's day and age where we love people love true crime and there's, and there's no way they're going to go out and commit a murder. They're just like, it's just a very interesting concept and it is macabre and morose, but it doesn't mean that they're like, wow, I wish I could be that person.
1: (laughs) No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, a very good point that you bring up is that this fascination, especially now, I don't think it's just now. I think people have always had a fascination with true crime. Um, It's just that now there's so many avenues that people can Mm -hmm. access it uh, that we see it so abundantly. But, I mean, we're looking as far back as 1951 where there's people who are fascinated with the idea of, Mm -hmm. you know, can you commit the perfect crime? Or, you Mm -hmm. know, what are the tendencies of criminals and all these different things? Uh, And funny enough, uh, Barbara Morton, the one who is – there, as the sister to Ann Morton. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Patricia Hick- Hitchcock. That's Hitchcock's mm-hmm. daughter. So, uh, funny enough, uh, that's not the only time that she shows up in one of his movies. So, yeah. No.
0: Now, I found this movie to be extremely homoerotic.
1: Mm-hmm. What yes, would uh, you say geez. to that claim? I. Am <laughs> You're like, going to go with ahead your mustache, go. just like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what would you and- say? I was going to say that it it happens to be that this is the second time that we've mentioned that in a movie that also happened to star Farley Granger Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And he did it was public that he did have a homosexual relationship in real life. Uh, So I don't know if maybe Hitchcock was leaning into it or not.
0: Yeah, I think he was, for sure, because Hitchcock and Robert Walker, who played Bruno Antony, I mean, they worked out an elaborate series of gestures and worked on his physical appearance to suggest the homosexuality and seductiveness of Bruno's character, and they did it to bypass censor objections. (laughs) Um, And to that end, I found out that Bruno was named after the kidnapper and killer of the Lindbergh baby, which is super horrifying.
1: <laughs> oh man, that that just shows you Hitchcock just inserting little things oh, to creep oh. out people for sure. Yeah. Now, it wouldn't be a Hitchcock movie if there wasn't some drama. Warner Brothers wanted to cast their own stars in the movie. This was this used to be in a time where the studios pretty much owned actors. So yes. like, you know, certain people belong to certain studios. And mm-hmm. they assigned Ruth Roman to play Ann Morton, completely steamrolling over Hitchcock objections. He he was against the idea. He apparently found her bristling, uh, that's a quote, and lacking in <laughs> sex appeal, and said that she had been foisted upon him. <laughs> <laughs> These are all words by Hitchcock himself. Unfortunately, he seemed to have held it against her. Uh, Farley Granger, who played Guy Haynes, said that Hitchcock hated Ruth Roman, even openly criticizing her in front of everyone. Jeez, when he doesn't like someone, it's terrible.
0: He, I know. he takes
1: it out on people. He- he does the
0: merry-go-round just keeps going faster and faster because hitchcock apparently played a cruel prank on his daughter patricia she was on set she was in the movie and she also directed her father during his cameo in the movie uh but patricia is or or was she's still alive Uh, afraid of heights so her father goaded her into riding the ferris wheel which was constructed for the fairground set he promised her a hundred bucks if she did it and so she did thinking about the money but when she reached the top of the ferris wheel hitch stopped the ride and turned out all the lights so she was alone in complete darkness up at the tippy top for a few seconds he never did give her the hundred dollars she called the stunt her father pulled sadistic
1: good lord that is <laughs> that is a, such a great prank, so wrong. but it's so wrong. Now, speaking of sadistic, there's that scene of Bruno at the party demonstrating how to strangle someone, which I found to be like super shocking that. Yes. like In the middle of a party like this person. Like, Let is me showing, show you. <laughs> Let me show you how I strangle someone and they can't Ugh. make a sound while I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, Hitchcock was also fond of showing people how to strangle someone. So,
0: oh my gosh.
1: And then social (laughs) gatherings and stuff too, like just how it is in the movie. Oh man, just like in the movie. (laughs) Now, that's not all the drama. Raymond Chandler wrote the screenplay for Strangers on a Train and he and Hitchcock had differing visions for what the movie and movies in general should be. Chandler was all about character motivation while Hitchcock was more about the splashy visual development and formal structure of a movie
0: yeah i like this quote from hitchcock he said when an actor comes to me and wants to discuss his character i say it's in the script if he says but what's my motivation i say your
1: salary <laughs> oh, man which just so, very cold <laughs> i would love to uh, maybe not right now at this moment but maybe find like directors that kind of match those sensibilities of one's more splashy And the other one's more focused on the writing, uh, kind of as a differing there. Now, Chandler wrote a letter to the studio executive saying he preferred to work with a director, quote, who realizes that what is said and how it is said is more important than shooting it upside down through a glass of champagne. Wow. Taking shots at Hitchcock there. (laughs) like. (laughs) Basically, style and no substance is what he's saying about Hitchcock.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now, to make matters worse, they had totally opposite meeting styles. Hitchcock liked long, rambling, off-topic meetings where the movie might not even be mentioned for hours. Chandler was all business, but Chandler was also a hard drinker, so he wasn't very easy to get along with anyway. The relationship between the two became so awful that one time... Hitchcock arrived at Chandler's house for a story meeting, and Chandler screamed out his window, "Look at the fat bastard trying to get out of his car!" He didn't even care at that point. If Hitchcock <laughs> oh heard him. <laughs>
0: that is terrible. terrible.
1: That is. Can you imagine? That is terrible. Can you imagine working on someone on a movie where you spend so many hours together, and you get to the mm-hmm. point where you start yelling at stuff to the director, and you don't even care?
0: Oh God. That's yeah, just that's just petty.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, pretty okay. much.
0: Yeah. But it wasn't all strangling at parties and direct insults between colleagues. Cinematographer Robert Burks worked as DP on Strangers on a Train, his first time working with Hitchcock, and the union was a lasting one. He was Hitchcock's go-to cinematographer, and they worked together for 13 years on a dozen movies. They also became close personal friends, which was something of a rarity for Hitchcock. Burks once said, You never have any trouble with him as long as you know your job and do it. Hitchcock insists on perfection. He has no patience with mediocrity on the set or at a dinner table. There can be no compromise on his work, his food, or his wines. <laughs> Strangers on a Train did get nominated for just one Oscar for Best Cinematography. But it didn't win it, and the film was highly successful at the box office, unlike Hitchcock's previous four films, including Rope and Stage Fright.
1: Well, there you go. I mean, you, you need to have success, apparently, in, in order to really continue where you were going. You can't just keep having flops and flops like that. Now, here we go. We're going to wave at 1953's I Confess as we pass it on <laughs> on the train and get off at the next stop. Uh, that next one being "Dial M for Murder" from 1954. This is an adaptation, uh, an adaptation. I'm sorry, of a play by Frederick Knott, which on stage basically took place all inside a London flat. We'll get in that in just a second. It stars Grace Kelly, Ray Milland, and Robert Cummings. Side note: uh, Kelly and Milland had a steamy affair during the filming, and Milland almost left his wife for her. So both guys, both uh-huh, guys. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. the letterbox synopsis says an ex-tennis pro car- This is the second movie in a row where tennis is. I involved. know, tennis. <laughs> an ex-tennis pro carries out a plot to have his wife murdered after discovering she is having an affair and assumes she will soon leave him for the other man anyway. When things go wrong, he improvises a new plan. To frame her for murder instead. Now, uh, let's talk about the movie before we get to our questionnaire on this one. Um, What did you think of this movie, Dial M for Murder?
0: I thought it was pretty smart. It was a smart movie. Um, And I liked the visuals. I thought it was really ambitious for Hitchcock to... Try and do this movie in the same way as the play. So it felt very much like rope to me because we were basically stuck inside this London flat the whole time. Instead of, you know, expanding the scope of the movie and bringing it outside, which is what you usually find when a play becomes a movie, they're like, oh, we can go outside. Let's take this and make it larger and go outside and get these really flashy um, locations in the mix which we aren't able to do on a stage. Um, He didn't do that. He kept it small. He kept it intimate. He kept it really tense because all of the action takes place in one location, in one flat, one room, essentially. Um, And I found that really compelling. Uh, Obviously, Grace Kelly being in the movie was interesting because he played on um, her, her concept, I think, which you think of Grace Kelly. Um, we'll discuss her later on as well, but I thought that the costuming for her was super intentional and we can talk about that later as well, but, um, it was good. I thought that this was going to have a little bit bigger of an ending, a little bit more of a climax, so to speak. Um, and it didn't, it was like, everything kind of comes to a head and then let's just have a drink before we... You know, take him off in handcuffs. You know, it wasn't very... There was no car chase. There was no explosion. There was no, you know, nothing of that sort um, at the end of the movie. It was like, you knew who the murderer was, and we're just going to work with that the whole time. You know? We knew who was at fault
1: the whole time. Exactly. Now, I really enjoy how... You we're basically working through the process of the lead character uh, while he's trying to figure out how he is going to get away with this once mm. things go wrong. Of course, you know, the best plans never <laughs> come through when you want them to. <laughs> so like from the moment that his watch stops, uh, mm-hmm. you know, everything starts going wrong for him. Mm. And at that point, we, we as an audience are invested just to see if he can get away with it. Not necessarily because he's been planning this for, for a year. Yeah, he, he had been is... putting
0: money aside, withdrawing money from his bank account for a year, small amounts, so that it wouldn't cause suspicion. And he saved up enough money for the hitman,
1: basically. Yeah, pretty much for yeah. the hitman. And mm-hmm. to try to get away with this, he had it all meticulously planned, like at they a certain time. the wills so yep. that
0: he would get all of her. All of her property, all of her money in the event of her death and vice versa. Same thing on his behalf if he died. So it was pretty elaborate and he was such a suave dude. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, he was. uh, And he could pass off any particular moment and come up with an excuse for it right away. Or he can Uh basically he was good at dancing on his feet, you know, (laughs) just like. Very like, hey, this just came up. I can roll with it. I know how to mm-hmm. fabricate a lie right out of this
0: and yeah, make it convincing.
1: Yeah. Um, now, I, f- I thought that this was like a mix of suspicion
0: and strangers on a train.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. It felt like that.
0: Yeah, it, did. it felt like they just mashed it
1: up. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Grace Kelly, great addition. We'll, we'll talk about her plenty. Uh, in the next couple of movies as well. Uh, she just has this radiance that just, just like right off the screen, <laughs> just, and you see it in every movie that here in this period that we're calling the Grace Kelly period or the era. And she just has this magnetism that just pops off the screen. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> and yeah. it, it's a, it's no wonder why, you know, she or Hitchcock wanted to work with her or, or, at least was willing to work with her uh we'll get into a little more of the back and forth between them Uh,
0: absolutely i wanted to draw attention really fast to how hitchcock was really uh inventive with how he shot this one space um yes i i liked this really big obvious overhead shot as the husband explains the perfect plan for a murder And then he reuses the same really obvious overhead shot of the parlor in this flat using the same angle when the police investigate the flat for the murder. It's like the murder investigation and the murder planning are shot the same way. And I thought that was brilliant.
1: (laughs) Oh, it was super well done. Uh, I just think that Hitchcock at that point is experimenting with different ways of using the camera and Mm -hmm. thank goodness for the inventiveness because it's one thing of filming a movie in one location and it can become boring after Mm -hmm. a certain point but using certain angles or trying new things with a camera uh that's what brings these moments to life like one thing that i truly love and he he's a master of this but it's either um shadows or silhouettes he, he loves using it mm-hmm. but one of my favorite shots is when after they leave and the phone rings and grace mm-hmm. kelly wakes up and opens the door and that splash of light just mm-hmm. lets into the room right there and you see yeah. her silhouette walking into the room
0: mm-hmm. uh, i
1: just think it's lovely camera work and lovely lighting it's just amazing mm-hmm. throughout that you got to give hitchcock credit for knowing what he's trying to shoot and how to shoot it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I liked the line of the, of the lover. I forget his name. Um, he says, because she's like, I wonder why I'm not feeling more. I just feel so empty. Uh, I'm not you know, breaking down like I should, because she's just kind of been through the ringer, been through the whole, um, uh, trial process, appeal process. And she's like the next day she's going to be executed. And she just kind of is going about the whole thing like she's in a trance. And the guy tells her, it's a delayed action. In a couple of days, you're going to have a most wonderful breakdown.
1: <laughs> and I was that like, was bro. Really funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was really funny. That was Robert Cummings as Mark Halliday.
0: Yes, Mark yes. Halliday, um, yeah. I,
1: I do love how Halliday uh, basically explains the murder like, to Tony Wendis? Because Windisch?
0: he's a mystery murder mystery writer. Exactly. And so, so he, he, like, concocted this whole elaborate story to save her. Because it's like a Hail Mary sort of pass here. She's going to be executed the next day. They have to come up with something so they don't kill her. For something she didn't do. And
1: he figures it out. He figures out the whole thing. Figures out the whole thing. The only thing he could not put together was, where was the key placed he thought it was like on the edge of the door on the frame of the door he thought it was somewhere there uh luckily for us uh chief inspector hubbard played by john williams no not that john williams Uh, (laughs) um he is the one that figures it out where the key was Hell, you know was hidden so i think overall i I really enjoyed this movie i really enjoy the aspect of watching the antagonist Mm -hmm. try to get away with the crime.
0: Yeah. And I thought really it joke. was so, so interesting that there were so many like um how do I put it? it uh, like feminism uh things at play here because you know, she's a wife, she commits adultery, and so she gets convicted of killing a man based solely on the fact that she had an affair yeah because they cannot prove that she let him in the apartment they cannot prove that she saw him and knew him they can't prove any of that that he was even uh the person that was blackmailing her all they all that they knew was that she was having an affair an affair and the proof was in his pocket he had the letter that she kept um right. And they literally convicted her of murder and sentenced her to death based on her, for sure, 100% having an affair. And I thought that was
1: incredible. That incredible. is wild. That is wild. That, that they she would kill her for think. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we can't come up with the proof, but you know what? We, she was tr- cheating on her husband. Death.
0: And I can't believe that they would just dismiss her self-defense claim after even seeing like the bruises on her neck she's like he came from behind he tried to strangle me um i stabbed him with the scissors in self-defense and they're like you could have done that to yourself (laughs) what i mean i mean uh, how much are we i
1: I found the words it's the me too movement
0: because they didn't believe her
1: they didn't believe her story how many times do we see nowadays where people will mention a story and women come out testifying or bringing their story mm-hmm. and people are just like, how do we know that's really true? Yeah, you like, know? what the hell? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, it, it's crazy to think that you can, mm-hmm. you know, take something that's happening now and you can apply that sensibility for a movie yeah. and it actually is true. It holds water. Yeah, when, when we talk about it, it was strong so to
0: see even the yeah. husband. Um, it, the police come and they're asking questions, and he's answering on her behalf. Yeah, and that's like okay, like her just defaulting to him and him spinning the story that he wants is like accepted. That's fine. They wouldn't just go straight to her because she's the victim, she's the victim, and they're not talking to her. He's talking, it's like exactly. insane to me.
1: It's insane. insane.
0: I love the symbolism, the irony of her um, stabbing the guy with this pair of uh, scissors that she had left out to do a very wifely thing, which was very. to paste together the scrapbook of um, newspaper clippings from when he was a tennis star. And so yeah. he's basically at fault for ruining his own murder uh, plan, murder plot. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. He was so. Uh, insistent that she stay home and when she even brings up the idea oh I might go catch a movie mm-hmm. and he's like you know don't you have to do those clippings why don't you do them tonight since you're not going to be doing anything uh-huh. and It it's crazy how much a man had control pretty much over a woman at that time mm-hmm. uh, that he could talk for her he could spin any way he wanted to and you know, it's not until recently that we get, you know, a little bit out of that. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that we're fully out of that, but you know, luckily we're not <laughs> in that time period. Yeah. That is right. the the key there.
0: For sure. Questionnaire. Let's do this. Is there a murder? Yes or no?
1: Yes, there is. Grace Kelly kills her would-be murderer in self-defense. Is there a blonde protagonist? It's Grace Kelly. Yes, there's a blonde protagonist. Is of there course. a character?
0: Of course. Is there a character on the run? Yes or no? Uh, No, although the husband does try to get away (laughs) with uh, uh, murder, framing her for murder. Are there any foreboding shadows? Yes or no? Um, Yes, absolutely, for sure. Uh, My favorite shadows are when the lovers separate just as the husband arrives and you see them part. Um, Yes. Any ominous staircases? Yes or no?
1: Yes, there is. (laughs) The husband hides the key to the flat under the stair carpet. So, yes, we definitely have them. Is there a train? No. Um, (laughs) Very rare, but no. There is no train in this one.
0: Does the character whistle? Yes or no? No. Was there at least one handwritten note? Obviously, yes. The lovers exchanged letters and Margot burned all but one, which ends up being a huge part of the plot. Yes. Um, did we see a newspaper headline? Yes or no? Yes. <laughs>
1: yes, we, <laughs> we did.
0: did Queen, Queen Mary arrives today headline.
1: And finally, gripping climax. Was there a gripping climax? And was it possibly at an iconic landmark? No iconic landmark because it's all in the flat pretty much. But mm-hmm. it's is it gripping? Maybe not as gripping because it's not like a chase or anything like that. It's all just like... I figured out what you did, you know? Mm -hmm. So not quite as gripping, but still nonetheless, a pretty good movie.
0: Hitch famously dismissed the movie, later saying he found the film to be coasting, playing it safe. Sure, there's no mystery to it, and Warner Brothers seem to have forced their will on the production, as we'll soon discuss. I read an article from The Guardian, and I like what the writer says. Maybe he was bored by the story, bar the attempted murder, relies little on surprise or suspense to entertain the audience. It's less who done it, more he done it, and will he get away with it?
1: Exactly. Now, Hitchcock's dream cast was Deborah Kerr. William Holden, and Cary Grant as the murderer's husband, but Warner Brothers (laughs) cockblocked them pretty much. Uh, They felt that Grant would be miscast as a villain, so history is repeating itself because studio RKO didn't want Cary Grant to become a murderer in suspicion for the same image reason. Anyway, Deborah Kerr and William Holden were busy making other films, so MGM loaned Warner Brothers Grace Kelly so she was under Warner uh she was under MGM at the time and Dial M for Murder was the first time that Hitchcock and Kelly worked together so it was serendipity
0: the early 50s was actually a golden age in 3D films and Warner Brothers wanted to capitalize on the craze, although it was on the decline, insisting that Hitch film dial-in for murder in 3D. So Hitchcock complied working with the bulky, heavy, giant 3D cameras for the entire shoot and even added a pit into the floor of the set so the camera could move for low angle shots with lamps and other props in the foreground. The opening shot of the letter M on the rotary phone had to be faked because the 3D camera couldn't focus on the extreme close-up like that with a real phone, so he used a giant prop phone and a huge fake finger to dial the phone and get the shot he wanted. The same shot was used later when the husband Tony dials Margot from the restaurant. Now, Hitch was sure the movie would be released in flat, and he was right. The movie was released in 3D for only a few days before it was changed to a conventional 2D release. In fact, one month before the movie dropped, Variety published an article with the headline, 3D Looks Dead in the United States. (laughs) Hitch later recalled that 3D was a nine-day wonder, and I came in on the ninth day. The 3D version was eventually reissued in 1980.
1: Can I just say that this is probably one of the worst choices to put a movie into 3D? Just because of the fact that it is in an apartment pretty much the entire time. Literally, like,
0: there's nothing to to 3D.
1: No, there isn't. But anyway, (laughs) as we can see, although Hitchcock wasn't passionate about the project, that doesn't mean he wasn't particular about the details. He was extremely hands-on when selecting Grace Kelly's wardrobe and handpicked nearly all the props for the Wendis' apartment. Especially because they'd be seen in a different light with a 3D camera so close. He had a whole concept behind her dressing in colorful clothing at the beginning and then transitioning to muted colors, mimicking the psychological condition of the character. He says, quote, We did an interesting color experiment with Grace Kelly's clothing. I dressed her in very gay and bright colors at the beginning of the picture, and as the th- plot thickened, her clothes became gradually more somber, end quote.
0: But Grace Kelly put her foot down with one wardrobe choice She explained he wanted to make a fancy velvet robe for me. He said he wanted the effect of light and shadow on velvet for the murder scene at the desk. I was very unhappy about it and I told him I didn't think it was right for the part. He said he wanted a particular effect but I said I don't think that this woman is going to put on this great fancy robe if she's getting up in the middle of the night to answer a ringing phone and there's nobody in the apartment. And he said, well, what would you do? What would you put on to answer the phone? I said I wouldn't put on anything at all, that I'd just get up and go to the phone in my nightgown. And he admitted that that was better, and that's the way it was done. End quote. Hitch agreed to allow Kelly to make all costume decisions for herself on their other films.
1: So as you can see, Kelly and Hitch... They had a great working relationship, with him even describing her as a quote, rare thing in movies, fit for any leading lady part. End quote. I wonder if it was because she was blonde and beautiful.
0: Well, he did say at some point, blondes make the best victims. They're like virgin snow that shows up the bloody
1: footprints. Uh, It's funny that you mentioned Virgin, but we'll we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Now, the one scene that Hitchcock was truly obsessed with was the murder scene. Of course, he spent a full week filming it out of a 36-day shoot just to get it the way he wanted. After several unsuccessful takes of Margot stabbing Swan with the scissors, he said, quote, this is nicely done, but there wasn't enough gleam to the scissors. And a murder without gleaming scissors is like asparagus without the Hollandaise sauce. Tasteless. End quote. Man, uh, Hitchcock, when he is describing something, is a master class on his own. I now, Hitch was so nervous and anxious filming the scene that he reportedly lost close to 20 pounds. And with that, we will take a short break.
0: Hey, we're back moving on from dial m there were some financial troubles brewing at warner brothers prompting hitchcock to look for a new contract with a different studio he landed at paramount pictures and his first film from the studio was 1954's rear window starring jimmy stewart and grace kelly <laughs> a quick synopsis a photographer confined to a wheelchair after an accident spies on his neighbors and suspects one of them is a murderer like the movies that came before it Rear window was a technical challenge for Hitch, as the camera never leaves the apartment and thus required the construction of a massive courtyard on set. So now everyone, including the audience, is peeking in on the neighborhood from a voyeuristic perspective. So here we go. Let's talk about rear window. I, I didn't yes. get a chance to rewatch it. I have I've already uh, watched it a couple of times, but I didn't watch it fresh uh, for this I didn't get a chance to, but did you?
1: I did. Uh, okay. I did get to rewatch <laughs> it. So I had seen it before. Yeah, And this is, I wouldn't say it's, I don't want to say it's my favorite Hitchcock just because there's it's a couple there, of others though. that are, yeah, it, it is up there though. I think that it is masterfully done. I think uh, we mentioned earlier, you know, uh, at least in other movies that we've talked about, that Hitchcock basically has this penchant for uh, voyeurism yeah, in his work, yeah. and Rear Window is the prime example. Uh, yeah. There's almost a there's almost like a perverse sensation from seeing mm-hmm. what people do in their private moments, and I'm using that in quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Stewart basically is an avatar for yeah. Hitchcock himself, mm-hmm. and he's allowing us to see and listen to what he imagines. When he looks into the lives of other people, that's that's the sense that I get from this movie and just the way Hitchcock likes to view yeah. his uh, protagonists or likes to view people in his Absolutely.
0: Movies. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely an, inv- an invasion of privacy, um, this movie. And um, it's incredible. I, I love it. I really love this movie. I love James Stewart. I remember watching it and not thinking anything of the huge age gap between uh, Jimmy Stewart and... Um,
1: and Grace Kelly.
0: Grace Kelly. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it, it just it shines. I think this movie is done really crisply. Um, I like that... He didn't rely on on he didn't leave anything to chance. You know Hitchcock is such a perfectionist, and he wanted to control everything about it. So this wasn't just done in. He didn't find a location like this. He built it himself. You know he found, he went in the studio and on the soundstage and was like, "We need to dig this whole thing out." And um, you know the courtyard is actually the basement of this massive sound stage. And then Jimmy Stewart's apartment is ground level. So it's just this elaborate thing, 31 different um, apartments. You know, these people all had earpieces in their ears to so that they could hear Hitchcock's directing and what they were supposed to do because literally the camera never left Jimmy Stewart's apartment. And that is like a huge... You know, logistical thing. They had so many people um, working toward one goal. And it's just it's a lot of fun to watch because you kind of give in to the sensation that you have a right to see into other people's lives like this because you are paralyzed. Like you can't move. And you're just like, this is your only form of entertainment. Like it was very It's very interesting to watch Rear Window and not feel entitled to, you know, shed light on this small murder that would have gone totally unnoticed. And I love when the murderer comes to Jimmy Stewart's apartment and he's like, what do you want? Like Jimmy Stewart has all the power in that situation because he is the witness. Yeah. He's the one that suspects and he's right.
1: Exactly. And even though he may be in a... Right, even though he may be in a wheelchair at the moment yeah, because of yeah. a broken leg, he does mm-hmm. hold all that power. Um, yes. I also feel like this movie is something, it's it's quite a spectacle here in terms of how we're doing right now in terms of quarantine or stay at home. Yeah. And this movie feels exactly <laughs> that, just transported just into a different desperation. time.
0: Desperation. It's just yeah. pure desperation because he yeah, would like, never have looked so closely at his neighbors had he not been confined to a wheelchair in his apartment.
1: Yeah, and it, it's is, like incredible. He is ready to get out of it. Like he's you know mm-hmm. counting down the days. He knows exactly when that cast is coming off, and so he's just been stuck at home. And again, the only thing he can do is just look out of his window. Mm -hmm. But what he looks out his window, he either becomes more appreciative of what he sees or he begins to take notice of things that are maybe a little off Mm -hmm. or a little wrong. Now, uh, this movie, I think, is such a masterclass in uh, taking its time because the way Mm -hmm. the camera moves from apartment to apartment, getting the lives of the different people, even the people that – you don't necessarily need to know anything about,
0: uh-huh. but we're
1: always checking in on them throughout yeah. the movie. Yeah. So you have the you have the music uh, writer who is constantly <laughs> trying to come up with a musical note. You have who they affectionately name Miss Torso, who is always <laughs> like practicing her ballerina moves, or yeah. she has gentlemen over. You know, you have the couple who live upstairs who are sleeping on a mattress outside because the heat. Is yeah. so much like it's it's a summer heat in New York mm-hmm. City so it, it's it's pretty wild there and pretty bad so I really appreciate that Hitchcock takes his time and letting us see the lives uh-huh. of other people even yeah. though like in some way it does lend to his voyeuristic tendencies mm-hmm. um I, I still do appreciate that um what did how did you feel? Uh, I know you haven't seen it in a bit, but how did you feel about how the movie wraps up?
0: Um, well, so the so the murderer comes over to Jimmy Stewart's apartment and there's that great scene of him flashing uh the the camera, camera flash, flash at him yep. to cut, delay him getting to him and kind of disable him. Um and then he tosses Jimmy Stewart over the side of the balcony, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes, he does.
0: Okay. And then Jimmy Stewart ends up with two broken legs, lives to tell the tale, and the murderer does end up, um, you know, getting caught.
1: Getting caught, exactly.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it. I, I do, think, too. I think it's great. Um, you know, I, I wish that... Um, I don't know. I think it's good. It, it, I think Hitchcock learned from the twenties and thirties where the film would just end. Like it would get resolved and then pa like it's done. The end right. pops up on the screen and you're like done. This one, it does give you that epilogue where he's got the two broken legs and you know, he's back to where he was. And uh, but he has the satisfaction of knowing that he he's caught a murderer in his own backyard. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, um, how did you feel about Grace Kelly and her character in this movie?
0: I think she's stunning. I think that probably the more interesting parts of the movie are them talking about their relationship and how they kind of... he Jimmy Stewart's character feels that it's not going to last, that it's not a lasting relationship. She doesn't lead the same life that he does. He's always on the go. He's, um, you know doesn't live this life of luxury that she does and right. it, she can't really adjust to his lifestyle. And so they eventually have to part. And I like that sort of doomed relationship aspect of it because they obviously are attracted to one another and they're obviously like something about each other because they started this relationship in the first, in the first place. Um, but it's just not sustainable. And right. I, I like that. And I like how she tries to, um, adjust to him. She's like, Oh, I have everything I need in this overnight bag. And he's like, Really? It's like very, it's played for laps, really, because she, she opens this tiny suitcase and yeah, it's, it's her overnight bag and she has everything she needs, apparently. But, um, she's still dressed in this like elaborate chiffon, um, nightgown and, everything about her is high maintenance like for lack of a better term like she's not one to be gallivanting off in the jungle and photographing things on journalist assignments like he does and in war zones and things like that she is high society she's night cream at the end of a long day she's high heels she's this beautiful gorgeous wardrobe from uh edith head which we'll discuss as well but like it it is obvious that they're not no hacen pareja
1: no they don't yeah Yeah, they don't uh i think that obviously these are two incredible characters incredible people that i think would you know would be great people to be with If you can match, of course. Mm -hmm. And these two don't match, even though the movie does (laughs) want to give us a resolution that they will end up together. Um, You know, she just waits till he's asleep and then Mm -hmm. opens up Bizarre Magazine to, you know, to read it at that time. Uh, Something that came to my mind while I was watching Grace Kelly this time around. um, I'm not saying she looks like her uh, or has same mannerisms, but... There was a sense of what kind of actress it resembles her now or, you know, recent time. Oh. And I feel like someone like Nicole Kidman kind of gives off a lot of those vibes of very like elegant. classically beautiful, elegant, mm-hmm. who can, you know, jump off the screen, who can be playful, but at the same time serious, who can be, you know, they could be you know a loving character or a lover or they could be you know very you know funny and grace kelly embodies all of that mm-hmm. and so that so i just wanted to put that out there that i feel like you know in that line of actress nicole uh-huh. kidman kind of falls in there just okay guys t- before
0: we get into to the questionnaire guys tell us who is today's grace kelly
1: yeah that <laughs> i think that's a great question who yes. is today's grace kelly Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and let's go to our uh, Hitchcock questionnaire. Is there a murder? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes the neighbor is. Lars
0: kills his wife. Is there a blonde protagonist?
1: I mean, yeah. just talking about her. <laughs> Grace Kelly. Is there a character on the run? Not really. No, but it, it's more of like in secret trying to hide stuff. So it's not really mm-hmm. on the run, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, are there any foreboding shadows? Okay. No, but there is great use of shadows, though. I will say. Right, because
0: he uses the shadows to spy. (laughs) He turns out the lights, and then they can't see inside. So. And then when Lars comes,
1: when Lars comes over and he Mm -hmm. opens the door, the way you know the shadow or the light right behind him casts that silhouette. It's really good. Yeah.
0: Any ominous staircases? Yes or no? I don't remember.
1: (laughs) So no, we don't see them. Although, you know, there's like fire escape ladders and all that. But we hear them when Lars goes over to Jimmy Stewart's apartment. You can hear him coming up those stairs, uh, you know, which I found. And then like he turns off the light from the hallway. So I thought (gasps) that was very well done. Very (laughs) like. eh.
0: (laughs) Is there a train? Yes or no?
1: No. We don't see one, but they definitely talk about one. Because what? supposedly Lars puts his wife on a train to a different <gasps> that's
0: city. That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Does the character whistle? I don't think so. I don't mm, remember. No, not not in that sense. Um, like in like a musical tone. No, because uh-huh. we have the we have the music performer in the other apartment carrying the music. So that's okay. That's exactly.
0: Was there at least one handwritten note? Yes,
1: yes. or no. For sure. Okay. Uh, Jimmy Stewart writes it to Lars, and we see him writing it on camera. Uh, he actually writes, <laughs> what did you do with your wife? He actually oh, writes it, he folds right. it, and Grace Kelly takes it to his apartment. Uh, oh did we gosh. see a newspaper headline? No, no newspaper headline, although we do see a cover of Time Magazine, which apparently Jimmy <laughs> you know, photographs for. And finally... A gripping climax, possibly at an iconic location. The climax is gripping, for sure. Uh, The Mm -hmm. landmark is not. This is just a normal (laughs) apartment building in New York somewhere.
0: Yes. Um, Hitchcock liked working with Jimmy Stewart, preferring him over Cary Grant. He found Stewart easygoing and Grant fussy. According to Thelma Ritter, who played Stella in Rear Window, hitch never told actors or actresses if he liked what they did in a scene but if he didn't like it quote he looked like he was going to throw up end quote grace kelly to no one's surprise really was popular on set james stewart said everybody just sat around and waited for her to come in the morning so we could just look at her she was kind to everybody so considerate just great and so beautiful now i said we were going to talk about grace kelly so let's talk about it um piggybacking off what we said before about her having an affair with her co-star in Dial M for Murder I just want to mention that Grace Kelly it, we said it is she's known for being beautiful she's known for being sophisticated she gives off that vibe of a pure woman especially with her dressing so elegantly, with the white gloves, she refused to smoke on screen. In her pictures, um, she even she was born in Philadelphia, so she's a Philly girl. She had a Philly accent at first. She consciously got with a dialect coach and switched to this upper crust uh, British accent. She was just, she was not British at all. Um,
1: transatlantic. So she,
0: yes, she had that transatlantic accent. So she had this image. But she often had affairs with her leading men who were often way older than her, which totally blew me away the extent of it. She was extremely promiscuous. Biographer James Spada said there were two revelations that astonished him while researching grace for years. He researched her life for like three years. He said quote, "The first was how the most sexually active woman in Hollywood was able to come across as the most chaste. The second was that <laughs> pri- yeah the second was that Prince Rainier actually believed that she was a virgin."
1: End quote "Oof, Wow. Damn. Imagine being able to pull that off. Now first off, the fact that and I'm just quoting here, the most sexually active woman in Hollywood." Uh, that is saying something, uh, especially in a time where, you know, even now I, I believe that there's just people just hooking up all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and there's always, there's always stories of actors and actresses getting together, Yeah, you know, from filming or anything like that. Uh, yeah. but damn, the, the fact that she, Prince Rainier actually believes she was a virgin <laughs> going into marriage, God, I, you know, God bless yeah. him. Oh, poor thing. Now, Oof. um. moving on from you know all this promiscuity that we're talking about (laughs) let's talk about costuming now this movie is notable because it's hitchcock's second time working with costume designer edith head he'd worked with her nearly a decade prior on notorious uh and edith was an amazing prolific costume designer who worked on movies like the great gatsby the original of course (laughs) sunset boulevard Roman Holiday, and All About Eve. Well, these are all just classics. Amazing. Stone Cold classics. <laughs> yeah. If you look at her IMDb, she did like a dozen movies a year for decades. It's, it's truly incredible stuff, just churning out work. She ended up working with Hitchcock on 11 films. Anyway, I don't think it's a secret that Hitchcock was obsessed with Grace Kelly, like he was with most of his leading ladies, although they never engaged in any affair. That we know of. Mm-hmm. For Rear Window... Hitch suggested that Head give Kelly falsies so she'd look bustier in the overnight negligee she wears to spend the night at Jeff's. But the ladies never took his advice, making other smaller changes to the costume, and Hitchcock was none the wiser. They fooled him into thinking (laughs) Grace Kelly's costume had been (laughs) padded.
0: I love that, that they're just like... "Mm." No, and then they like Mm. passed it off and he approved it. (laughs) Oh man, just like other Hitchcock movies, um, this one is based on a couple of real life murder cases. One man killed his pregnant mistress and dismembered and burned her body, and another man poisoned his wife and cut up the body. The movie Rear Window was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, but it didn't win any. Okay. The next Hitchcock movie is the last movie we'll discuss in this episode, and that's another Grace Kelly, Cary Grant vehicle, the romantic thriller To Catch a Thief from
1: 1955. Here we go. Now, the letterbox synopsis reads as follows. To prevent being accused of the crimes, an ex-burglar must catch a thief who's been copying his style. Cary Grant came out of retirement to do this movie and Hitchcock made the film in the first place because he wanted a holiday in the south of France. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me that. of, I know this is like, oh, why are you comparing him to Hitchcock? But it's Adam Sandler with all of his <laughs> friends and it's like, hey, I want to make a movie in Africa. So, hey, let's make Blended while we're there. right? Or, right. you know, stuff like that. that. That's the way he kind of treated it. So, yeah. in the south of France, which is beautiful, by the way, in this so movie, it's, just, oh, it's ridiculous. Now, the filming took place in the summer of 1954, but the release was delayed because the producers felt the 25-year age gap between Cary Grant and Grace Kelly made the romance too unbelievable. But no one seemed to mind because the movie was a hit. we watched it (laughs) yes we did Jessica what did you think of To Catch a Thief oh my god I loved it Like I I loved
0: it so much I, I thought it was just absolutely luxurious and vibrant and exquisite it gave me such a lust for life and for traveling I found it just a feast for the eyes we mentioned Edith Head before in her costuming I thought that this movie was just Mouth watering. The designs were so heavenly and just beautiful to look at. I mean, I mean, I was like on the uh, just. I was so engrossed in this movie, and the color on it—it was—it was not a black and white movie. It was fully in color, and it just—it was so just jumping off the screen. Everything was colorful everything was beautiful i yes vibrant i just i can't praise this movie enough because the plot was great the acting was great the chemistry between Cary grant and freaking grace um, kelly grace kelly is just like knock your socks off amazing yes what did you think of this
1: movie i think this movie is incredible uh it would have been a crime if this movie was in black and white now i'll tell you that much right now yeah um it has so many iconic moments just the way the framing of the picture is in certain things or certain Mm -hmm. moments um, but you don't forget any of Hitchcock's style because even though this isn't really like a, a thriller, like a suspense-driven thriller, this is more of a cat and mouse game uh, that mm. we're watching here, and and it's more lighthearted than you know something like Rear Window or yeah. you know sh- you know Stranger on a Train. You know it's more lighthearted, but you you know Hitchcock still has his fingerprints on it. The way he plays with shadows, the way he plays with light. Uh, There are things that he does, um, you know, misdirection here and there. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think this is beautifully done. Again, I cannot uh, just stop talking about the (laughs) south of France and the way it was shot. Oh, my God. I will say that I even caught it like as soon as I noticed it. And it's like when Cary Grant, well, you believe it's Cary Grant. Leaves his villa to escape from the cops, and you see it's basically a chase scene with cars, and it's being shot from overhead with a helicopter, which Mm -hmm. is something that you know they weren't doing at the time, and Mm -hmm. so it was like our first true chase scene the way we kind of know how it is nowadays Mm -hmm. when we see a movie, when we see a car chase, we we kind of know what to expect. This was like the first. I know that well, time almost.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, I like that John Williams came back to play as a repeat customer. He played the insurance agent in this movie, and he was the detective in Dial M for Murder.
1: Those bureaucratic um, roles.
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> I loved the color grading in this movie. It was beautiful whenever there was a theft happening or when the black cat was prowling around. Everything was just washed in green and everything... Just had this eerie glow about it, and that was super appealing to me. You mentioned the car chase through the freaking French Riviera. I swear to God, it's beautiful. The chase through the flower market was also another really um, gorgeous setting. Like, why? Who, who would think that to do a freaking chase on foot through a flower market in France? Um, we. I like this Pitchcock cameo i think the most out of all the cameos we've seen so far um this one hitchcock sits next to grant on the bus and there's this old lady with a couple of caged birds aha birds he loves birds and grant looks over at hitchcock very meaningfully and i was like this is excellent like this is amazing (laughs) like i loved it um i appreciated the grant's uh thief nickname was the cat and he has a copycat (laughs) hey (laughs) Um,
1: you know i will say they were not very subtle with the cat part when it's like no anytime there was a milk (laughs) Or the fact that when at the beginning when they show the montage of the different burglaries, there's a cat prowling around. Yeah, like yeah. Okay, not very subtle, but still the great imagery.
0: I know. I thought that the the dialogue in this one was particularly good and witty and rich. Um, I like the mom, especially like she says like I'm sorry I ever sent her to that finishing school. I think they finished her there. (laughs) yes (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> i love that line
0: yeah um surprising. i started laughing so hard i know me too um danielle the other um i guess woman protect like the second female lead in this movie she tells him at some point uh, why would you want an old car when you can get a new one for cheaper Referring Damn. to Grace Kelly because Grace Kelly is older than her. She's supposed right. to, be, the Danielle's supposed to be playing
1: a teenager. Right. And
0: I was just like, oh, like that yeah. was. It will
1: run better and last longer. Oh. She finishes off that line, which is oh. so crazy. Um,
0: I thought that the best suspense or moment of chemistry between Grant and Grace Kelly was like the fireworks scene. Yes. There was this, this, this close up of fireworks cutting back and forth between them on the couch. It was just, gave this wonderful sense of fast paced excitement as they get closer and closer. And then they, you get closer and closer to the fireworks. And their chemistry is just off the charts. Like it just ignites in that scene. Right. I, I mean, uh, I the, was the like,
1: symbolism there is not lost on me either. No, no, no. Absolutely not. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoy the fact that. Uh we are it, it's almost you know, for us it's feels like a normal who done it kind of. Mm-hmm. Because you're you're figuring out who is the mysterious cat who is copying John Roby's skills and John yeah. Roby's tactics. And so, you know, throughout the movie, how early in the movie did you figure out it was Danielle? Because I kind of figured it out halfway.
0: Um, I think it was about then as well. Like as soon as he went to try and get a hit on the neck, It was kind of like around the time that her father was killed. Danielle's oh, that, father. that
1: later in the movie.
0: Yeah. And then I feel like I was just suspicious early on. Because you it can't just be a random person. It has to be somebody no, that you've it has interacted with. to be someone with. in the
1: movie. Exactly.
0: I think I didn't suspect Danielle so much as like the owner of that restaurant who was his friend. Yeah. I think that dude was more like on my mind as far as who was behind it. But I was like, he can't be climbing all over the buildings and right. <laughs> like doing the actual stealing. So I was like, he has to be the mastermind. And he he was like that. I was he right, was. but I didn't, I didn't suspect Danielle until um, her father died. Then I was like, oh, it's
1: 100% gotcha. it's her. Yeah. Yeah. For me, uh, I figured it was Danielle when Carrie um, Grant and... Uh, Grace Kelly are at the beach and yes. he swims over to that barred area whatever that is mm-hmm. that platform and
0: mm-hmm. they have their
1: interaction I just figured why is she here why is mm. she like you know looking for him and everything right. so that right there just kind of like put my my you know sensors up I was just your like your spiny senses
0: second. were tingling
1: exactly <laughs> so that kind of just like mm, I don't know she's popping up in random places to see him Mm. sneaking up on him oh man uh but yeah so i i really enjoy the movie i think um at the very end we have a great climax i think that having you know the chase on the rooftop is oh my
0: gosh it's fantastic yeah yeah
1: i love that it's like at a costume party like at a ball yes you know exactly like what was it like 18th century 17th century something i I don't even know but you know at at this amazing you know chateau pretty much you you know along the french riviera just the the location that hitchcock (laughs) chose he was like i want to go on vacation to one of the most beautiful places in the world
0: yes please let's film a great movie here too while we're at it okay so let's Let's do the questionnaire really quick. Um, yes. Is there a murder, yes or no? Yes. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, the wrong cat was killed, the man with the wooden leg, which is Danielle's father. Yes. Is there a blonde protagonist? Yes. Uh, I mean,
1: we're calling <laughs> it the Grace Kelly era for a reason. Yes. Uh, now, is the, a character on the run? Yes. John Roby is on the run from the police because they think he has returned to become a jewel thief again, as he mm-hmm. was before.
0: Any foreboding shadows, yes or no? I don't think the shadows were foreboding necessarily. I think they were artistic shadows. Um, then, like I mentioned before the fireworks scene, the night they watch the fireworks, Kelly wears this divine white gown and jewels on her neck. And she turns out the lights and the whole room is just shadows and green color blocking, which signifies... The cat is on the prowl and uh, she backs up into the shadows. so Her face isn't visible, but the jewels glitter in the light. And it just matches what she's saying. She's doing this weird hypothetical situation talking about what would you do? The jewels, blah, blah, blah. And it's amazing. It was just so
1: Mwah. well done.
0: Yes. When she well did that, done. I was like, he's just flexing. Like Hitchcock is just flexing at this
1: point. He pretty much is. Now, Mm -hmm. are there any ominous staircases in this one? No, not in that sense. Although Kelly and Grant walk down a staircase at the costume party that is crawling with cops just waiting to nap.
0: There is that. Is there a train? No. Does a character whistle? No. Was there at least one handwritten note? (laughs) Yes or no? Yes. John gets a note saying you've already used up eight of your nine lives. (laughs)
1: Yes. Hammering that cat theme. <laughs> yes. Uh, did we see a newspaper headline?
0: Uh, yes. yes, we did, we did guys. <laughs> <laughs> we got a the cat brawls again headline with the cat's claw marks on it. Did you catch that?
1: I did not catch the, cla- the they uh, claw. There were freaking marks. like
0: scratch marks, claw marks in the freaking oh, paper. Get out
1: of here, bro. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um was there a grip, a gripping climax possibly at an iconic landmark yes or no um not necessarily a touristy iconic landmark but a gripping climax absolutely john yes. Roby and danielle fighting and hiding in the shadows on
1: the rooftop uh yes come to yes, mama that was amazing totally. um <laughs> and i'm here uh, it. although it may not be a iconic but give me the french riviera any day, week.
0: Any day. Please. Thank, thank Filmmakers, you. Filmmakers, go on vacation to go the vacation. Go
1: outside. Go outside <laughs> and make movies. We don't need more <laughs> movies inside a studio, believe me. Or in New York. Bye. <laughs> hey. Uh, now, uh, for this movie, a fun little fact uh, the lines in the picnic scene uh, when Francie joins John do you want a leg or a breast? And he responds, you make the choice. They were improvised. uh, So, you know, letting them rift, you know, Hitchcock is trusting his actors to do stuff and they do Mm -hmm. it for excitement. They do it for fun and they work.
0: He gave very little direction, I think, to his actors. He fully expected them to come in prepared, to come in knowing what to do, he didn't choose his actors lightly, so I feel like that reflects in this scene, especially because that was, I feel like that's pretty iconic, when she's like, do you want to a breast?" And he's like, you make that choice. It's like so flirty (laughs) and perfect. Okay, apparently Grace Kelly did all her own stunt driving, even though she wasn't a confident driver, and the chase scenes were filmed from a helicopter, like you said before. This seems like it would be a no-brainer, because... Filming from a helicopter happens so often now. It's commonplace. We expect it. You said before that if you have a chase scene, we're not going to see it from the ground. We're going to see it from the air. And that's because Hitchcock did it first. (laughs) Um, There didn't exist camera mounts for helicopters helicopter filming, and they had to jerry-rig the camera with ropes and wires and cables after removing the side door of the helicopter. They had to make it up as they went along. The ingenuity proved fruitful because To Catch a Thief was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Costume Design for Edith Head, and it ended up winning for Best Cinematography. It's also notable as the production on which Grace Kelly met Monaco's Prince Rainier.
1: There it is. Which spelled the end
0: of her cinema career.
1: (laughs) Pretty much. And yeah. And apparently the loss of her virginity, according to Prince Rainier.
0: Stop. Stop. (laughs) And with
1: that, that is week three of ATC Presents Hitchcock. Now, our next episode will cover the rest of the decade of the 1950s, including the beginnings of his TV show. The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1956, Vertigo from 1958, and North by Northwest in 1959, Cary Grant coming back yet again. Now, we're having a blast. We're watching through all of this Hitchcock. Uh, I don't think either one of us has ever marathoned through a single director's filmography like this. So it's been super interesting, and I I can't wait to keep going.
0: Mm -hmm. Me too. Me too. I'm having a blast.
1: I am having a blast. Now, again, if this is your first time listening, uh, thank you for joining us in the middle of the series. Go, Go back and start the series. It's from a couple weeks ago. And catch up with us if you want to. Ask us questions. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. And if you like us, go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way for us.
0: Don't forget to check us out on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook
1: at AlwaysCriticPod. Well, that has been our show. I'm Rico. And I'm Jessica. And this has been the Always the Critic Podcast. <laughs>